0: marketing can be an incredible force for good it can also be complicated and confusing i'm your host erica mills barnhart and my goal with this podcast is to bring clarity to the marketing chaos for you you'll learn inspiring yet practical ways to think about marketing differently so you can do marketing differently and get better results with less stress and more joy for you and your team. Motivation is for the mind and inspiration is for the heart. Marketing for Good takes both. Welcome to a whole new way of thinking and doing marketing. Welcome to Marketing for Good. What image comes to mind when you hear the word poverty? That image, whatever it is, it has been shaped by popular culture, by how and where you were born and grew up, by what you've been told about poverty as you grew up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How poverty has been marketed to us has direct bearing on our ability to end it. How we talk about something, the words we use, how we say them has a direct impact on the solutions we And here by we, I mean society, governments, NGOs, foundations, funders, donors, the big collective we, it's a reflection of how we think about it, whatever the it is. It's a reflection of our beliefs. So how can we change perceptions about things like poverty when those perceptions no longer serve us? my guest today wendy chamberlain has some ideas for us on this based on her work in global development she is the global program director for the boma project a nonprofit that is based in the us and kenya the boma project implements a poverty graduation program which she'll talk more about in northern kenya and in karamoja uganda and this program gives pastoralist women businesses okay pastoralist was a new word to me and wendy will explain this to us. So pastoralist women businesses, financial and life skills training so they can earn a sustainable income, provide for themselves and their families, pay school fees for their children, and withstand shocks such as medical emergencies or drought. To date, the BOMER Project has enrolled over 33,000 women in this program, directly impacting over 150,000 women and children in the areas in which they work. 150,000. That gives me goosebumps. Thanks to Wendy, this is a rich conversation peppered with some fun words, pernicious as an example, and really, truly deep insights. So without further ado, let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Wendy Chamberlain. Mm -hmm. Well, welcome to the show, Wendy. You do such interesting, very interesting and very important work. The more I learned about it, the more I was like, wow, this is fascinating and this is needed. So we're going to talk about whether or not poverty has a marketing problem. <laughs> uh, we're going to get there. I'm wondering if you'd be open to it. Can we start just by hearing how you got into doing what you're currently doing with the BOMA projects from Kenya? How'd you get there?
1: There's two stories. The one that goes back like 25 years is when uh, after college, I had a volunteer teaching assignment in Northern Kenya. And I got a chance to teach in a part of East Africa that I knew nothing about. And I also learned how difficult it was to, for entities and NGOs to operate in the area because the area is characterized as having like really low infrastructure, The only part of the A2 highway from Cairo to Cape Town that wasn't paved ran through Northern Kenya. It was known for having a lot of banditry and just uh, tensions between communities and was very prone to droughts and other uh, just reoccurring uh, environmental experiences that left communities in a lot of shock. And so I left Northern Kenya thinking a lot about that experience, trying to understand how to get into development and uh, eventually found my way working at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and was doing a Google search. This is about seven years ago, saying, who the heck is doing work in northern Kenya? It's really hard for stuff to stick there and not have it just be a humanitarian response. And I stumbled across this organization called the BOMA Project and uh, got really intrigued by their work, partly because it wasn't an outside NGO bringing in a solution. It was a, a an NGO that was focused on having local talent, people from the community delivering a solution in a way that was really contextually appropriate and responsive to the needs of the communities it was working in. And I got really hooked on that. And through a series of interventions, the BOMA Project uh, ended up winning, uh, being one of 19 awardees for a big RFP at the foundation. And I got to know them closely on the donor side and fell into this world of understanding or trying to learn, I should say, about something called poverty graduation programming. And poverty graduation programming is much of what BOMA does, which is it it has this approach, a multi-sectoral approach in what we say to addressing the pernicious, sticky issues around extreme poverty. And instead of saying, oh, if a person just has a bank account, then they're no longer poor and we know that not to be true, it looks at what can kind a of person though pay for their school fees, their kids' school fees? Can they, do they have money so they can pay for health care? And if a drought comes and wipes away their livestock, can they still be resilient and withstand that shock? And that's the type of approach that poverty graduation undertakes is to build resiliency through job skills, training, and ongoing mentoring and coaching for a period of time. And being a a bit of a data geek, I wanted to look at the research behind it. It turns out there's a whole host of randomized control trials that look at the effects of this type of programming to say, does this work even in the long term, even after you end your intervention? And sure enough, the results showed at scale that, you know, seven years after somebody goes through this type of programming, which I can explain in a bit, they they still are considered resilient. Their savings grow, their assets grow, and their family is able to absorb shocks, which is really what you want to see happening when people are taken through a type of intervention to help move them from one point to another point. I saw that working in northern Kenya, and I just got sold on it. I also wanted to move my family to Kenya and I wanted my kids to have a chance to live overseas and grow up in a a different country for a period of time. And I I wanted to understand, I had spent a lot of time looking at philanthropy and understanding philanthropy. I wanted to understand the implementation side. And I also needed to kind of put my money where my mouth was. I spent a lot of years on the philanthropic side saying, go and scale and go work with these partners. And now that's exactly what I'm doing and I'm feeling it directly. So... It's a long answer, but that's how I am where I am. We moved to Kenya a year ago, and we're we're learning to adapt and adjust in a new environment. And you made a choice
0: to stay there when COVID was becoming a thing. That's right, and you're still there.
1: And we're still here, and we're glad we're still here because we have. While Kenya has its challenges, at the same time, we're privy to consistent communication about how what's happening with. The spread of the virus, there's just a lot of adoption of approaches to keep people protected. And honestly, my kids get a chance to be outside in a completely different environment and culture and see things and do things that they they don't have access to, which is an enormous privilege. And it gives me and the work I do a chance also to work firsthand on, like, Really relevant solutions and how we respond in light of covid nineteen too mm-hmm. that would be harder to do right I in the US.
0: yeah and you were saying that that they that Kenya like shut everything down after three cases
1: yeah and it was March thirteenth Kenya had like around three cases, and the government shut down all the schools and then they they went through even more restrictive measures across the country we had a geographic lockdown, which meant we couldn't leave Nairobi. There's evening curfew still in place. Livestock markets were closed. All kinds of restrictions were put in place. And a large majority of them were just lifted last month. But it was really meant to contain the spread because most of the virus has been concentrated in um, population dense areas like Nairobi or Mombasa and other areas.
0: And you were saying before we get to poverty, I want to talk about the marketing of masks. Just for a moment. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Will you just will you share the messaging that came out around masks very early on?
1: Yeah. You know, it was uh, around actually it was around Easter time because I remember we were we were on a drive and the Ministry of Health was coming out with public announcements. They were actually quoting scripture, which I, I don't remember what it was, but it was essentially wear a mask, you know, do this in service of your neighbor because you care about you know, we care and take care of one another. And wearing a mask is a way that we can show each other, you know, we can do that humbly and serve one another. And that's honestly how a lot of people talk about wearing a mask here is like, I would, of course, wear a mask because maybe I have been in touch with someone who has it. And so I want to protect you and those around you. And and the side version of that is like, we we live in a country that has a health system that is working to respond rapidly to the spread of the disease, but is nowhere ready at full scale to respond. And so people know that these interventions will be life saving, And so they're willing to undertake those interventions. And so you don't have the same sort of pushback of like people feeling like a mask, wearing a mask is taking away their personal civil rights. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And
0: and it sounds like, I mean, I don't know if this is what they were quoting, but that's like the super oldest school messaging around, which is do unto others as you would have them do unto you.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. That okay. that I really it's like a
1: riff that, no, yeah. I'm on the Ten <laughs>
0: Commandment, on the Golden Rule. I don't even know if it's a commandment. Right. Actually, you know better. <laughs> so, I, I, yeah. I thank you. I'm just I'm appreciating hearing how different, you know, within the U.S. Obviously, lots of different approaches. But I really appreciate hearing, you know, these international perspectives and, and it does so frequently go back to the marketing of individualism, yeah, which is just part of the DNA of the United States. So watching that play out is is super interesting.
1: It's interesting from here because people ask me or tell me, wow, you made a really good choice not to go back to the States. What's going on? And that's telling and that's people who have... A different set of means than I have, but who would be are really, really concerned about the state of things happening in the U.S.
0: Yeah, yeah, really so. fair. Okay, so uh, that makes me think of othering, right? And how we we all we all sit from our place of, you know, our lived experience, and we make all sorts of assumptions about other people, and then I think that that gets amplified. Like the further away you go from what you know your assumptions become probably further from the truth just because you don't know. And so I think that's really relevant to this question, which was the subject line of the email that you sent me, said, does poverty have a marketing problem? And honestly, as soon as I read it out loud, it was just me in my office, I was like, yes, it does. And I thought this for such a long time because way, way, way back when I did work in microfinance and one of the things that was always shocking to people was to learn and just to open their mind to the fact that people who happened to be living in poverty were actually excellent credit, I'm air quoting, risks. They were really creditworthy. And so, you know, when I I talked to donors about that or just was chit-chatting with people about microfinance, they were like, but what? How is that even possible? And I think that says so much about The marketing problem that poverty has, which is that we do have all these preconceived notions about it, like with so many things, we bring our own biases to the idea of poverty, our own privilege, our own lived experience or lack thereof uh, as it relates to poverty. And then we make a bunch of assumptions. So I had to look up where the word poverty came from because I love etymology. That's that's you were talking about your data geek streak. That's my dorky streak, as listeners know. So I learned that it came—the word "poverty" came into the English language in the 12th century. I don't know what happened prior to the 12th century about how we would talk about poverty or not, but and it meant misery or wretched condition. So not a strong mm-hmm. start. Then we get "poverty-stricken" in 1803, "poverty line" in 1901, and um, "poverty trap" in 1966. Oh,
1: interesting.
0: Yeah, so I just think the so where it came from does say a lot, I would say, about how we think about it. And that combined with this idea of many of us, myself included, do not have, you know, we haven't lived it and we have a lot of assumptions about it. So that may, you know, one a piece of marketing is always this like, for whom are we optimizing? How do I get into their mind and heart? So they're that like projecting of self into other. But with, with poverty, there's just something different that's happening. So what made you ask this question about, does, does poverty have a marketing problem?
1: I think With COVID-19, oh, a few things. So where I work in Northern Kenya, the communities in which I work, they're called pastoralists. Pastoralists are people who earn their livelihood through livestock. And they are semi-nomadic, which means... They are their houses are temporal. And so that has been the prominent livelihood activity of people who live in northern Kenya, which is an arid, semi-arid land area. It's like it is the desert. And so people know livestock, and that is livestock is their full way of life. And it's an area also that um In the 1963 constitution that Kenya adopted after it left colonialism, they made a commitment to basically said, we're not going to invest in this area economically. We're just gonna leave it be. And that didn't change until the 2012 constitution when they revoked an article and said, we will now invest economically in this area. And this is an area that it covers more than the country of Ireland in size and is about six to eight million people. Um, so it's not like a small area. And there are Northern Kenya's everywhere in Sub-Saharan Africa. They are characterized as being last mile, which is really, if you imagine the last mile of a road, it's where the road might cut off because there's no infrastructure. There's no, there's areas where there's no electricity. There's no, there may be buildings, but they are not completely finished. And so that context matters because it sets the scene for also understanding what typically might be in place for economies to thrive and continue to grow. And when you have infrastructure, when you have investment. In communities, when you have a tax base that can contribute as part of this, too, um, that means you get schools with teachers and you have industries that are attracted to an area and all these other things that grow and grow and create jobs and create opportunities. When you don't have those things, and when we talk about this underinvestment that took place for such a long time, it means that it has. what we see happening is that people have been sort of removed from the opportunity equation because of a lack of these things being in place. And so many of the people who live in Northern Kenya are characterized as being extreme poor. And the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, even SDG 1 has the uh, definition around extreme poverty, which is, you know, people who live on a $1.90 a day or less, but People who are extreme poor don't walk around saying, I have a dollar and eighty-nine cents and I'm extreme poor. It's really meant to like capture that there's just this massive, I mean, that's it's there's very they have very few resources that they earn on a regular basis. And probably a better, a better measurement tool, in my opinion, might be like the Oxford Multidimensional Poverty Index, which looks at not just monetary value that a person has, but also that ability to mobilize resources to take care of their basic needs. And Globally, there are about 700 million extreme poor people in the world. That number was reducing uh, pre-COVID. That number is increasing post-COVID. And in northern Kenya, um, the reason I try I, it's important to me to focus on it is because I think it it shows both the opportunities that can be realized for the extreme poor. It also shows what constraints need to be addressed in order to overcome some of the barriers that are consistently persistent and COVID-19 really amplifies or exacerbates what those barriers are.
0: Yeah. And do, do you find it to be true? So one of the things about poverty, when we think about it in the U.S. context is there is this residual thinking from the Elizabethan poor laws, uh, which came across the water with us uh, when people came over, way back one on the Mayflower, And part of that was saying that if you report, it was your fault. There yeah. was something that you had done. So I just wonder when people hear constraints and opportunities, but I want to start with constraints. So when we hear that, I could imagine some folks being like, well, you know, constraints you kind of put on yourself as opposed to societal constraints, structural constraints in your context. One, I'm just curious if, if in Kenya and Northern Kenya, in this last mile zone, that's as big as Ireland, good gravy, And that's beyond, big, yeah. And beyond, that's real big. Um, so it's just like, I think for listeners to be last mile to this really big space, when people talk about poverty and constraints there, is is there this idea of like, well, they kind of did it to themselves. It's kind of their fault.
1: In the, this particular context, no, because the decisions were made during colonial times. In some cases, to both how you even geographically delineate the areas or partition the areas to begin with, and then how, and then post-colonialism, how you choose to invest or not in this area. So it's not that was less of a like they did it to themselves, and even then, and I, you don't see this sort of. You either pull yourself up by your bootstraps, sort of mentality, or not. That kind of spills over to into that. People widely recognize in Kenya, Kenyans themselves widely recognize that the north is really challenged by constraints around infrastructure, around environment, around really distinct ethnicities that are different than what you see in other parts of the countries that impacts language that impacts culture and a host of other things. And so it, there are people don't look at it, like should have done better. Yeah. That doesn't, that doesn't carry over.
0: You could just pull yourself up from your bootstraps. Is like, if you don't have boots, there aren't bootstraps.
1: Right.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Like you, you got to get to the point of having the boots even. So, okay. So when you think about constraints and then you were saying, that there's a lot of focus on opportunity and, you know, part of marketing many things, but definitely in the marketing for good space is painting this picture for people, particularly for people who aren't, who are living a different experience of here's the problem and here's the, the better, brighter future world, right? That, that together, if we can work together, we can get there. And so then how do we bridge that gap? How does that picture get painted in your context?
1: So I think there's there's both kind of the, that's actually why I wrote you that question too. There's mm. kind of the mythological side of that. And then there's the kind of the reality. You know, there's there's perceptions people have about that marketing of like, oh, they're, they're, people are poor in these areas. They are passively poor and they're waiting just what, is, what is passively? What passively do you mean by passively poor? poor? means just like I'm, I, a person is just sitting waiting for something to be given to them. Uh, That's what okay. passive okay. poverty would be. And they're just waiting. They're just There's nothing there. This, this kind of image is created. There's nothing there until somebody comes and brings in something to them. That's both a marketing of poverty and I'd say it's also a myth about poverty too. And that myth gets extended to maybe there's no markets that are happening. And maybe that all that can be done in this area is just time after time humanitarian response. And people do respond to that. And it has generated interest and it has generated thinking about what to do, solutions. But what we see long term is that. That belief structure around that type of marketing of poverty creates almost a static picture of what it means to be poor. And it fails to recognize, in my opinion, that in fact, people are pretty entrepreneurial by nature and that there are markets that exist. They may not be markets that one can compare to a, a savvy market, but they exist and often the failure has been actually around the responsibilities of the state. And I would I would also say uh, large-scale donors who have made commitments to reach that further end. And so and that's what we see play out. And what I mean by that, so a few things. In, in Northern Kenya has experienced a huge amount of humanitarian crises one after the other, especially in terms of drought. And it's not even just like one-offs. This year we had like a flood, drought, flood, locust, then COVID nineteen. Oh yeah, phenomenon. the locusts. Yeah, it was it's so a real thing. biblical, it, and it's it's still going, and they are huge, and they are and they are you know they are terrible, but we have cycles of experiences, and so that creates one image of like okay we got to do something now drop food aid do this like one time one shot thing that that is necessary at times, and I would never say it's not necessary. But when these cycles of um, crises become predictable, because drought cycles are predictable, there are now, there's so much that is done around predictive analytics. And when we know that another drought is coming, we know food insecurity is part of that. When there's predictability, you can create longer term solutions that are, are responsive to the overall needs and constraints. And the same goes for, When Well, let me pivot here and just say part of that is then entities making commitments to know more about what's going on on the ground with communities as opposed to saying, problem here, we're going to solve it, and we're out. But having staying power and being in communities and being from the communities really matters. I mean, the communities need to have a voice in solutions, and that voice, by paying attention to that voice, that voice alone tells you that there's a lot more going on than a static picture. Of poverty. There are also, I would say, a lot of premature declarations of victory against uh, around poverty. And this is part of the myth piece that goes on, where you know, we see examples where commitments around electrification, putting electricity into rural communities, um, where towers are put up, but they are not cabled for like years. And um, but, but victory is claimed checked. because the tower is up. The tower's up. A health clinic is built and it's been paid for by somebody, multiple health clinics, but they're not staffed, but you have that built. And so the accountability to fully see efforts that are funded at a large scale play out and have their intended impact is missing from the picture. And that gets Dismissed and put into the it's just really hard and they're just poor and there's nothing else there sort of bucket of, you know, that's how it is there versus it's hard, it's complex, and it takes more stickiness to address these issues because they are very, now we're in the tangly, tangly mess bit of really unpacking what is causing all these ingredients that are causing poverty.
0: Yeah, you used the word pernicious earlier, which stuck out because I love that word pernicious. It almost, you know, I don't know. It feels almost like an onomatopoeia. Pernicious problems are messy and therefore they require sticky solutions to it. What I'm hearing a bit in what you're saying is how these, you know, victories are marketed toward donors, perpetuates and actually makes things messier, not cleaner, and definitely not better. And I'm curious, you know, I mean, I, ha- I have my own opinions about like, why is early victory claimed? Why is it claimed? And if, if I mean, that's we, those examples, right? When we hear them, it's like, oh, that's goofy to claim victory. <laughs> that's, that's goofy. That's a public health clinic that isn't, isn't making anybody healthier because it's just a building. Why does it happen?
1: There's one of the other myths I think that happens around poverty is a lot like that movie Field of Dreams. Um, If you build it, they will come. (laughs) If you create the solution, it will trickle down, right? By building a building, they will be educated. Well, are the teachers there? Are they capacitated to teach? All those things, somebody else has got to focus on that. That's not my problem. Right. So that's what I'm saying is that one of the challenges we have in the field of development is this very siloed approach to addressing poverty. And poverty is not siloed. Poverty is not just siloed or on the line to like it's an agriculture thing. It's an education thing. It is a complex thing. And yet donors are not organized in that way in how they respond. They're not organized to fund in multi-sectoral fashions. They are focused, to organized to fund sectorally. And by virtue of that, NGOs are oftentimes organized to operate sectorally as opposed to multi-sectorally. So if I am a donor and I prioritize agriculture and I give out grants for improving agriculture, I'm looking for entities who can do that thing. If I and and so that's part of the problem. That's part of the challenge that we see is that kind of siloed thinking as to how to address a problem. The right. So I have has,
0: and I have a hammer. So I'm looking exactly. for exactly. Yeah. And, okay. And we
1: all do this, right? We totally all do this. I'll sure. say oh, one yeah. more thing is that um the uh what was I gonna say? The other part of this is is patience. So and 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 kind of like uh I won't say sexiness probably, that's terrible to say. I'll, I'll say like Patience and like attraction to like, this is the thing I want to do and hold up as my my beacon. So people want to fund the thing that they feel like is the most catalytic in their silos, right? And so maybe that's building school buildings. Maybe that's rolling out laptops. It could be a host of other things. People do not really tend to want to fund or have the staying power for like, well, what happened five years after you did that? They're looking for somebody else to fund that. And that's where you have to ask. That's where we actually need more focus and attention to say, well, you didn't actually electrify the towers, so nobody got electricity. Or you gave people a bank account, but guess what? They didn't use it as you thought, and they're still struggling. And so more attention needs to be put on the so wet factor of poverty solutions, or maybe just as much. And to yeah. many organizations credit, this is happening, but sometimes it has to, we either get so caught up in the like, it has to happen in this only methodological way to being able to like, let's just ask ourselves, honestly, is it working? I can look at the building, I can see there's no lights and it's clearly not working. I don't need an RCT for that. I just can tell you that that's not happening.
0: Yeah, I uh I go back to this question that Beth Cantor asked many years ago when we were doing a panel discussion about data and transparency. And the question she posed somewhat rhetorically was: Are you proving it or improving it?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I and I come back to it frequently from a from a marketing perspective to say oftentimes we get, and then there's some structural reasons for this, very focused on like look, I'm proving it. There's a building, there's a laptop, there's a this or or that, but does that improve the situation? Yeah. And I think it's that next question that would really inform things like annual reports. I point, I waggle my finger at annual reports because similar to like the electoral timelines, you know, so if it's two years and four years, you're kind of like, what can I get done? And it's very frenetic. I feel like in some ways annual reports are a disservice because they perpetuate this approach to funding and to doing uh, when you're the NGO, because you have to have something to put in the annual report, you know, to show people, who are those people may be, the funders who gave you money or whatever, whatever the case may be, what's happened and am i say do away with annual reports entirely i'm not ready to go there but i would love to see an evolution of them to acknowledge exactly what you're talking about which is here's the bit that happened this year what else needs to happen how can we improve it? Going, we can prove that we did this this year. How are we going to improve it going forward? And if there was that type of framework, well, then that becomes, I think, a positive. But as it is, I feel like we're all kind of stuck in the the development field for a long time. Has been stuck. I also think some colonial roots and historical things play into this for sure. And also, for the first time, I sort of for, for the for the instances where it's a U.S. based agency that's coming in this like pull yourself up from your bootstraps kind of plays out which is like well you have a building we gave you a jump start okay let's see what you're gonna do you know like it's i just hadn't thought about it in that way so it was interesting to hear you talk about that but there has to be you know you can't like marketing can't solve all the problems unfortunately but it plays out these perceptions and so it seems to me like we need to shift some per- perception in order to get the structural changes to start happening that would downstream impact marketing.
1: Totally. And we, say, we see this play out. So, about 60% of our program participants, the business women we work with, they receive government cash transfers or safety net payments. Um, and I wanna use this example because one of the things is, so when they receive those payments it's the equivalent of like $20 a month, it's not a lot of money. And it's proof alone that subsidy from a government by itself will not support you as you know as an individual. They spend almost the exact same amount to go to the distribution point to receive those funds, which almost cancels out that payment completely. The banks will not offer their services locally to them because they have been told these myths that there's no businesses here, people aren't entrepreneurial, they're passive recipients, and there's no market. And so what we have been trying to do as an organization that supports entrepreneurs and tries to access them to markets and uh, make those linkages, I should say, to markets is we start talking to the private sector players, the financial service providers say, there's actually businesses here. We started 11,000 businesses with these women and we have savings groups and there's stuff happening. There's livestock markets where women are trading like crazy in goats and sheep. And when we tell that story to the financial service providers, we're like, That's not what I knew of that area. I've never been to that area. But actually, that's not what I heard about that area. And so we are there to myth bust for them to say there are markets here. People are entrepreneurial. They are like, they can kill it. And actually, what is missing is you. You are not bringing the services they need to their community. You can't offer it the same way you do, say, in Nairobi. You can do it differently and still have an impact. And you can be a profitable business on the same side. So we try and reverse the tables of communication in that way to change the narrative, saying there is something happening here. So you're, you're trying to do what we
0: would refer to as changing the frame.
1: Yeah. I just don't know that it was called that. But
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And the frame often, uh, so it's to change frames. So I, I, how do you, if somebody has grown up with this one frame, this one belief system around the Entrepreneurial activity or lack thereof in this region. How, how how much does it take? Like, do they hear facts? Like, eleven thousand businesses. Does that shift them? Does that open their minds to this different way of seeing it, or, or what works?
1: We try and use data to tell a story. So yeah, we use facts. We tell them what's happened. We move from like you thought this was cute and boutique, and now it's scaled. And so what we thought was a one-off is now happening regularly. And it means this, and we can show them through the program that we offer, because we do all kinds of business monitoring to monitor business growth of these small enterprises to say, here's how they grow. Here's what's happening in terms of these businesses, financial activity. And it, fills in the blanks of a picture that was honestly blank. And it had been before populated with very sort of monochromatic flat images of what people thought it meant to live and work in these areas and gives a lot more clarity as to like, oh, this is actually, there's a lot, there is an economy here. There is something happening here.
0: So it sounds like you take them to a black, black, from black and white to like full spectrum color version of it. And I'm hearing a little bit of by mapping their language, your language to their language. So words like growth, words like scale. I mean, these are bankers. So that would be the language that might perk up their ears.
1: We And we think it's important to do that with private sector players. So it's banks, it's mobile network operators, but also with donors too, because we have to counter this narrative as well to say, no, there is something more here. There's a reason for you to invest this far out in an area that has otherwise been written off because this is what it means. And it's also about showing that the breaking point around poverty is not the individual and their lack of aptitude or anything else that's like super derogatory that can be applied. It's actually about the breaking point of responsibilities that are on the shoulders of governments and those who have made commitments to service those areas. Part of
0: their, you know, jobs. Yeah, yeah, that's very fascinating because switching frames is tough business. That's tough. I I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't uh, if we were talking about poverty and marketing and we didn't talk about poverty porn.
1: Yes, yes. Let's talk yes. about
0: poverty porn. Yes. So <laughs> for, for for listeners who are not familiar with the term, it is a term that's been used for a long time to describe. The type of marketing that has been done, which shows, you know, you can mentally envision the like, you know, very emaciated images, flies on faces, all of that, uh, if we're speaking about um, Africa, and this like that type of image versus a more asset framed approach to it about the possibilities and opportunities. And what's super interesting about poverty porn is that it's you don't, you see a lot more of the asset framing of, you know, positive opportunity framing around domestic marketing of sort of domestic and by domestic, I mean, you know, like within the UK, within Ireland, within the US, within Canada, um, we see more of that positive frame and yet what persists, poverty porn persists. And part of that, so there is, a bit of research which says poverty porn actually works in terms of acquiring new donors it is not as effective at retaining donors Mm -hmm. and we all know that acquisition is way more expensive than retention so if that's true why does poverty porn persist
1: yeah i think it's such an interesting i i'm always surprised when i i i I've had the experience firsthand where I was on a site visit for another NGO and I got pulled into shots of like, let's surround yourself with children and, and I will throw candy in the air and they will all smile and we'll all smile together, a sea of faces in it. And I was completely appalled because I didn't know what was happening until it happened. And it, um, And yet this was being used uh, for this organization to for that acquisition, they felt like that was super important. Yeah. It had nothing to do with what they were trying to tell their story. I think so. I think it has to do with a couple of things. One is that some audiences have short attention spans for good or for bad, and they have only been given one story since the 1980s or before, but especially the Ethiopia famine is the standout. The Ethiopian famine, you know, exactly. And so, and that's what they attribute with poverty itself and they can't be moved from that point. And to take audiences to a more complex conversation around what poverty is and what can both cause it and how it can be solved means that people need to be willing to commit more attention and to understand that the solutions are not as simple as that prior image would allow them to think about and respond to. So the first image, of like, this is what it looks like. And it's a static image of poverty allows me just to always respond in one way. And when it becomes more complex, that means I need to ask more questions. I need to understand that I may not, you know, this idea that maybe, you know, I as a donor have all the answers gets challenged. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. um, it means that the solutions aren't as straightforward as they were before. And so people choose, I think, between what they want to have, straightforward and simple, call it good, and or stay in the complex and maybe that's too reductionist i don't know but that's one way to think about
0: it yeah what comes to mind also is that it's not only so those images aren't only simple they are so different than what most donors Mm -hmm. experience right and so you know what we know is that donors in the united states are more prone or more likely to give to poverty alleviation uh, in another country, as opposed to, you know, we have a lot of poverty in the United States and that doesn't get as much of the donor resources. And part of the thing, one of the hypotheses about that is because that's too close to home. It's like, Oh, but then, then I I can't other enough. You know, if it's, if it's that close to home, that could end up being me that somehow makes donors feel differently guilty because they're not taking care of it. And I think the further away and the more different and the more othered we make folks keeps donors feeling more comfortable. Yeah. Right. It kind of, you know, perpetuates a lot of things that are maybe not too healthy. Um, I was just having a conversation on Twitter with um, Tom uh, Ahern. I don't know if you know him. He is Mm -hmm. brilliant. Fundraising direct mail message. he got brilliant. And he was saying, you know, there's been this term about donor centric fundraising for a long time being the gold standard. And Vu Le, I don't know, in the last year or two, was like, that's not the point. Donors shouldn't be the heroes. So unbeknownst to Tom, Vu had said that a while ago, and Tom said, you know, what other term could we we use? And I said, you know, because I, I agree with Vu very much so that we sort of got ourselves wrapped around this axle of this cycle where, yes, we want donors to feel good about their donation. They've done something wonderful wonderful. And I yeah. never want to take away from that, but it's like, we kind of got ourselves in this. It's like, but that's not actually the point. The point is what that money has made possible and it's the people being served. So my offering to Tom was that, you know, if we, if we need to sort of give it another term, fundraising that is, and in the marketing of doing good, that we will call it mission centered fundraising. Cause that's the point. Um, you know, Vu's offering is community-based fundraising, and I'm like, it's often about the community, but there's many organizations where it's about plants or trees or animals or, you know, something that doesn't quite fit in there. So I think that, you know, this is a long-winded way of saying, I think that a piece of it is complexity is hard. We know right now with COVID, our brains are all so overwhelmed. So the simpler things can be, the more we're likely to take action. But I also feel like we maybe haven't done a great job of simplifying intersectionality around, you know, addressing these. Like people get that. It makes inherent sense when you start talking to them about how these things are related. Yeah. I, I actually, I have, I have greater belief that people will get that. I actually think we haven't messaged it very well because that's not a tough concept.
1: Do you feel like though, um, I wonder about that because that that makes sense to me, but then I wonder like, there's still this like, but what can I do? What can I do about
0: this?
1: Right? And so that's where the fallback becomes like so much like, at least I can do this. I can't solve for infrastructure, but at least I can do this over here. And because they don't know how to, they may be able to make that sort of intersectional connection, but as to I think people are looking for a way to respond. Sure, and that's sure. The one but could we do? I don't a, know.
0: Could we do a better job of saying you'll you'll do better with the examples? Um, but you know, okay, no, I can't contribute to infrastructure. What I can contribute to is food. Yeah, you know, in some way. But but where I think there's an opportunity for doing better marketing is to say, here's how food relates to infrastructure. Here's how it relates to education. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Do your thing right here. Awesome. And then know how these things connect. Yeah. Because I think in that way, we might keep people more engaged while keeping it simple. Yeah. Simplifying the complexity of it.
1: I think that's super interesting. I'm trying to put my mind, my head in the mind space of somebody who might be a founder who's like, I just got to get money in the door, sure. and how there'd be attraction across around a very sort of quote unquote simplistic, you know, model versus the complex one. And, and but it, I could imagine if you if you took that what you described as the starting point, that'd be really you would get a really interesting engagement experience with your donors. Right, and and even in interesting conversations around you, you might even just get a different set of donors. I don't know because I I think there are, you know, those. I think people are drawn to support different things. So um, I love that idea. So that's that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, I, I my addition to it would I just want to acknowledge with it is. When you are the founder or executive director and you just need to raise money, this idea of approaching things differently would come across as pure luxury said from somebody who is not needing to raise that money right now. So I really want to acknowledge that, that the, that offering of an idea comes from a place of a privilege and that sometimes there is urgency and we know what stuff works and what stuff doesn't, um, which, you know, unfortunately perpetuates a lot of a scarcity mindset and so that's a, I mean, that's a structural issue that is going to be tough to unravel on the philanthropy side of things. And, and I, you know, I look to the philanthropy side of things to say, y- you have flexibility, you know, how might philanthropy and the way that philanthropy is framing things, these issues, the complexities help unlock the, uh, the way in which historically, and to, you know, to this day, we're really marketing poverty. I Absolutely. think they really play a role.
1: And to the extent that there are those philanthropies who are willing to have that conversation and that discussion, recognizing the power dynamics that are part of that conversation, um, that's where I think you start seeing the needle move forward. And not just philanthropies, but when we believe that addressing poverty needs to be done with a multi-sectoral approach, bringing public sector, the private sector to the table as well. That also means that you're creating a different kind of conversation than what's been done before. And it's no longer one entity that has the solution set, but it's recognizing that you need to, it's a complex problem with a complex solution set.
0: Yes. And then what we know about people's minds in particular um, is then there's a the work of breaking it down and sequencing it. Yeah. And then this, and then this, and then this. I just, I just, I sit here and I'm wondering, like, maybe we have a sequencing problem. Frequently when I work with organizations, I'm like, oh, you have all the pieces. We just need to rearrange them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Just need to re-sequence them. I wonder, maybe, you know, that is like my hardcore optimist coming out. Like, oh, if we just rearrange a couple of words and sentences, we'll be good. Yay! (laughs) I know it's not going to be that easy, but hope springs eternal. You were saying actually that you're in a WhatsApp group, which I just want to say, Every time I hear something like that, I'm like, wow, we are not on the WhatsApp train here in the United States. Um, but you were saying you are involved in one that is a conversation around power, privilege, and philanthropy.
1: Yeah. I wanted to, it's a group that uh, of folks who represent a variety of sectors talking about this issue and it's a, represented by people from all over the globe as well. So it's coming from a variety, with a variety of voices at the table. And it's, it's talking about, I, I actually brought up this topic, like do we, what are these myths that we have around poverty that we need to address? And what was really interesting about a conversation that we were having is that even the notion of philanthropy is a challenge with it how that money gets to be where it is who decides how that money is used and what that money influences is part of this conversation at a huge level and and some of the belief being that you know ultimately what philanthropy is trying to address are constraints and challenges that individual governments should solve for themselves and for their citizenry which means there's a there's a host of conversations around that around how those governments came to be around how the power structures came to be and what are the systemic issues within each of those contexts that need to be addressed because they're greatly imbalanced but i think it's an appreciate it, it draws out an appreciation for this and i know there's a lot of folks talking about this topic right now that how we think about the role of philanthropy And the voice that philanthropy has at the table has to be measured in this conversation. Money does not equate with solutions per se, because whoever writes the biggest check doesn't mean they have the best solution. Sometimes it's the worst solution. And and so it's more that that conversation has to be a consideration of this broader piece about how we talk about unpacking and tackling pernicious problems. Because there are many, just as we see as the social issues have come to light in the US, there are so many threads that are tied to these things that you can't look at one and say, this is the only part of the issue that matters. You have to begin to look at all of it. And that also means there has to be a broader scale commitment to talking about all sides of the equation too.
0: And a broader scale commitment to being uncomfortable. Yeah. Those are not comfortable conversations. So before we make any progress on, you know, substantively shifting things, it's going to be uncomfortable.
1: It's going to be uncomfortable. And it's going to mean that people lose who like me, you know, losing seats of privilege that maybe that people shouldn't have had to begin with or recognizing where that privilege comes from and recognizing also around who decides, who decides who has the best solution. And that's that's something I think about all the time. Yeah, yeah. Who decides? It's a huge conversation around power. That's part of this too. Yes, it is.
0: As frequently happens, um, I'm learning on these podcasts. Like we get to this point, and I'm like, I know we have to wrap up. Wendy's a busy human, and of course, where I want to go now is to that whole discussion about power and privilege and marketing of those things. But I mean, we'll just we'll just have to stick a pin in it and have that as that a follow up conversation, It'll
1: be a fun discussion. which will give me an
0: excuse to see your face again, which, uh, will be a blessing for me. So
1: same as well. It's a treat. Yes. I
0: end every interview with the same question and it has to do with inspiration and motivation. So the root of the word inspiration means to breathe in, gives you breath. Motivation means to take action. So you need breath to take action you and what keeps you motivated to do this really incredibly amazing work that you're doing with the BOMA project?
1: What inspires me? Um, I'm cognizant of sounding trite. Honestly, though, I, I, I know I'll just run that risk. I work with business women who kick ass. They have they are risk takers. They are super bold. They have a voice, and they are creative, and they withstand shock after shock after shock. And they they keep like doing that with very minimal means. And honestly, they they inspire me because I look at where they work, I look at what they do, and I, I just I uh, I, th- I think that just flies in the face of every notion about what it means to. Be poor, a passive picture of poverty, if you will. Yeah. What motivates me is that the work around this issue is not done. And that's not to suggest that I'm the solution or anything like that. I just try and think about what tools I have in my toolkit. And part of that is passion and interest. And part of that is thinking and just always analyzing okay, what do I have? What do I do with what I've been given with to? to think about this challenge and how do I work with those who also care about this topic. And I get so much energy about that, from that place. And that's, that is how I do my work on a daily basis.
0: I love it. I don't think acknowledging badassery is trite, by the way. <laughs> and I did Fair have point. the privilege, I've not done as much work as you, but some work in Cambodia and Nicaragua and other places around microfinance. And mm. those women are, they're just, they're fearless, they're fierce. They are oh, so, I cannot agree with you more about how inspiring they are. And I feel like their stories are starting to be told, but wow, i I just, our world would be a, better place if more of those stories were out there yeah. so that our perceptions could be shifted um so that this this mental image we have of passive poverty is eradicated along with poverty itself yeah but i think one is the precursor to the other
1: yeah i totally i'm with you, i agree with you on that Thank you, Wendy, for
0: doing this relatively for me. That would be relatively late at night because I'm a morning person, because you are coming to us from Kenya. Thank you, listeners, for being with us today as well to learn about this work of the BOMA projects, to get a little bit of insight into Wendy's incredible brain and her great big heart, and about, you know, maybe our path towards shifting the marketing problem that poverty has starts from our hearts and from a place of compassion and being open to it, looking and empathy and that being open to poverty, looking really, really different than we, than we think it does. So thank you, Wendy. Thank you listeners. And with that, I'll say, do good, be well, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Marketing for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, subscribe, review, and share on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about Claxon University, how to make more impact in and for your organization, or hiring me to speak or coach, go to claxonmarketing.com or reach out at info at Again, thanks for listening, and thanks for making our world a better place.